there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. You don't want to hear what she said, do you? <laughs> oh, Betty, did I really say that? And I said, yes, you did. I remember it, ipsissima verba. Probably didn't say that, but you know, something like that. I remember exactly what you said, and I said, and I want you to know what it meant to me. And I explained to her how much more her spiritual counseling meant to me because she had the humility to carry the mops and the toilet paper. And she said, Oh, baby, just think of the mercy of God that he allowed me to carry mops and toilet paper for his glory. And that's servanthood. Let's look at John 13. The first verse is so tremendously revelatory of the meaning of what is to follow. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening, the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now I want you to notice the word so, verse 4. It refers to those things in verse 3 that remind us that Jesus was very well aware of, of his origin and his destiny. And because he knew that, he knew that nothing would change where he came from or where he was going, he had the strength and the grace to get up from the meal and take off his outer clothing and wrap a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into the basin. In John 8.14, there's another verse that we need to look at. <clears throat> Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. He knew the source of his authority. He was not depending upon himself. He did only the things that he saw the Father do. He spoke the words that he heard the Father say. He received these things from his Father. And he received, on the occasion of the Passover feast, the 
strength and the grace to take the position of the lowest servant in an Eastern household. The low man on the totem pole was the one who did the washing of feet. And he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not know what I am doing. You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And Peter, impulsive and sympathetic in ways which you and I probably would have been also, said, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Peter replied, going to the other extreme, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. We'll just skip down to verse 12. He said, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place, and said, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. Another verse that I wanted to refer to is in Romans 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And the footnote to that, if you have the NIV, is very important. Be willing to do menial work. I de deplore the television commercial. It starts out with a woman saying, If there's one job I hate, it's cleaning toilets. And you know what? I don't do it anymore. And she goes on to talk about the blue stuff that she puts in the toilet, uh, in the, what do you call it? Now you know that I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with using the blue stuff that you put in the tank. What I do deplore is that attitude that you hate the work that you have to do. I hate to hear a child say, I hate school. My Grandson, my oldest grandson, did go to public school for two years after he'd been homeschooled, and then he asked to go to the community college, which had a program that he liked. But when I heard it, when I when I got secondhand the word that Walter hated school, I was dismayed. So when I had a chance to talk to him, I said, "Walter, is it true that you hate school?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, can you tell me why?" Because I think I don't. I didn't say this to Walter, but I feel very strongly that anything that we have to do, we should learn to like. If you can't do what you like, then you like what you do. And so I asked him what it was that he hated about it. And he said, I hate the sin that I see in my teachers. And I hate the false ideologies that they're cramming down my throat. Now, I didn't mind that he hated those things. I was glad to have that straightened out, that it wasn't the schoolwork that he hated. But be willing to do menial work. Don't hate it. 
And if your children hate work, it's probably because they have been infected by your attitude. Somehow or other, you've given them the idea that you're a TGIF person, thank God it's Friday, and a Blue Monday kind of a person. That whole frame of mind would be absolutely foreign to a jungle Indian. They worked, of course, seven days a week. And they never made any big deal about the rigorous labor that they had to put in every day of their lives in order to survive. The Alkamen would leave the clearing every morning by 6 o'clock if it wasn't absolutely pouring rain, and they wouldn't be back till 5 o'clock in the afternoon, sometimes 6 o'clock, and they probably would have run or walked 30 miles or so looking for something to eat. They went out separately. They never went out together because you don't hunt together with blowguns and spears. And the women went out as soon as they had taken care of the babies and fed the small children and had whatever might be left over for them. Then they went out to work in the plantations. And they worked all day, every day. And I never saw an Alka woman come back with a tremendously heavy basket on her back full of manioc and plantains and whatever else they might have had perhaps a baby on her hip and a machete in the other hand and this 50, 60 pound basket of food, I have never in my life heard an Indian woman say, what a day. They would come back with mud almost from head to toe, having worked and sweated all day long, and all they did would walk into the house stoop down so that they could take the band off the top of their head that was bearing the weight of this huge basket so that they could drop the basket onto the floor behind them. And they set to work, stirring up the fire, cooking the food, and very calmly and quietly doing the things that needed to be done before they went to bed. Let's think about the attitudes that we have toward the work that we have to do, and then ask yourself, the question that Ruth Harms Calkin asks in her poem, what if I had to do something in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? I have the opportunity to speak in very many women's weekend retreats, and many of the places we go, they just go to tremendous trouble and effort to make everything just beautiful. That's the way it was yesterday at the church where we were, I just couldn't get over all the work that these women had put in to organize it, make it beautiful, and everything else. And we didn't have 20 minutes at the end of thanks with everybody's name being given out. Many places I've been, it takes quite a chunk of time to go through all the people who did anything and thank each one individually. And I can't help wondering how many volunteers they might get in that kind of a church if the people were told in advance that there would not be any public recognition of their service. Well, all of that is by way of introduction. I'll give you four headings. Why did Jesus do what he did? Number one is why. The Bible clearly tells us it was to show the full extent of his love. Remember that he was headed 
for the crucifixion. Wouldn't you think that that would be sufficient evidence of his love? When the disciples learned that that's what had happened. Of course, they did not know at that point what was ahead of him. But you and I are not going to be crucified, literally. And probably they were, most of them were not either. Tradition tells us that some of them were, but they didn't know that. Crucifixion is one thing. Washing dirty feet is something very different. And I think that it's significant that Jesus wanted to give them an example of something that anybody can do any time. And it will not be thanked. Nobody's going to thank them for it. And they will not be sung as heroes for having done it. So Jesus' crucifixion, which is the final and irrefutable proof of his love, was not the only thing that demonstrated what that love meant. This scene at this supper was in order to show the full extent of his love. He did this humble job for his beloved disciples who had disappointed him so many times and were going to disappoint him much more in the next day or two. And he did it even though he was their Lord and Master. That's the thing that's important here because he was not, he was not counting on the fact that he was Lord and Master. He was not taking a position above them. He was taking a position below them, showing the true meaning of humility and the willingness to do whatever needs to be done. Now in our culture, we don't have to wash people's feet because we don't walk on dusty roads in sandals. There are courtesies which are recognized when somebody comes to our house in the wintertime. Of course, we have to figure out what to do with all those coats. And you take people's coats. If someone comes, drops in to see you, you immediately put the tea kettle on, offer them a cup of coffee or a Coke or something. And these are recognized courtesies. Foot washing, as I mentioned, is the lowest job done by the poorest, lowest slave in the household. And so Jesus was being humbly courteous to his disciples, and although he took the position of the lowest slave, he did not abdicate abdicate his position as Lord and Master. You call me Lord and Master, and you say, well, for so I am. So let us never think that because we have attained some kind of a position that any job is too low for us. Amy Carmichael used to say that there is no calculating the value of a missionary who will come to do whatever needs to be done. Anything that needs to be done. I hear sad stories about the attrition rate of missionaries. And sometimes... I believe it's because they felt that their talents or their gifts or their calling was not adequately appreciated. They didn't get to do what they thought they were going to do. And I would like to have a chance to say to them, and so what else is new? Is there any missionary that has ever done exactly what he thought he was supposed to do? Uh, I certainly went to Ecuador with the idea that I was going to be a linguist. 
I was going to do linguistic work. There's no question that God had given me a gift in linguistics and God had called me to the foreign mission field and he had led me in answer to my prayers to Ecuador and I did linguistic work in three different languages and for various reasons, all of it went down the drain. There is no nobody using any of the stuff that I did then, nor has there ever been since way back in the 1960s. That doesn't mean that God didn't accept the service. The point I'm making here is that God's will is different. It's always different from what we think. It's always bigger than what we think. It's always probably more difficult than what we expect. But, don't leave this one off, ultimately far more glorious far more glorious than we could ever expect or predict. The job is done for Jesus, not for somebody else. So he was in this act of love and humility. Jesus was asking his disciples to take up the cross, and he showed that there are terribly mundane ways of doing that. Whatever cuts across your tastes or preferences or desires is the cross in some form. We need to learn to recognize the crosses as they come and let's not dramatize them or make some big deal out of them, but let us also look squarely at the truth of it. It is a cross because it cuts across my human preferences and when the will of God cuts across the will of man, somebody has to die. And it's my chance for a small death. Paul said he died daily. He was, he did, he, he died a thousand deaths. We talk about dying a thousand deaths and it's, it's quite literally true that if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, there will be thousands of opportunities to take up the cross. Most of them will be terribly mundane. They are not things that anybody else is going to notice or hear about or for which you are going to receive any kudos. Now, secondly, how could Jesus do what he did? Because he knew his origin and his destiny. And so do we. We know our origin. We know our destiny, if we're Christians. And Jesus had total security in his place, total security of his place in the Father's love. He had no fear. He knew his father's sovereign rule over all. He could do it because he knew it did not jeopardize his position as lord and master. Miss Cumming knew that to carry mops and toilet paper did not jeopardize her position as a spiritual counselor, but it never occurred to her that it would indeed enhance her position. Let's never be afraid that our position is going to be jeopardized if we do what God tells us to do. When Amy Carmichael went to, to India, she had a very effective missionary ministry for the first seven or eight years, as I recall, as an itinerant evangelist. She had a band, a small band of godly Indian women who traveled with her. 
They traveled by bullet cart, which has got to be the most uncomfortable form of travel in the world. Lars and I tried it for about 10 minutes when we were in Donovor, and that was about nine minutes too much. You feel as though the wheels are square, and of course there are no springs. They traveled in that, and they, they tented in villages, and they would seek then to try to reach the women who were the, the inner courts of these Hindu homes, women who had never been reached by anybody else. And the time came when Amy began to learn about this secret traffic, immoral traffic, of taking little girls and boys for immoral purposes for use in the Hindu temples. She was absolutely appalled when she learned about this. Some of these children were babies when they were put there, and they were never released. They stayed for the rest of their lives in that wicked place. And she prayed that God would enable her to rescue some of these children. And so God did that. In a miraculous way, he brought a little girl, the only little girl in all of history, as far as anybody knows, that ever escaped from a Hindu temple. She was about seven years old, and she had already been made a prostitute long before that. And Amy tells the story of how this little girl appeared on Amy's veranda early one morning when Amy was having her morning tea, out of nowhere, apparently, and didn't have any explanation to offer as to how she got there or why, so Amy concluded that an angel had taken her by the hand and brought her to this veranda. But it was through this little girl that Amy learned the truth of what really was going on, and it was much worse than she had imagined. And so began a work for small children, babies, which meant, according to the Tamil proverb, children tie the mother's feet, and Amy could no longer itinerate. And so this very effective evangelistic work, which she had loved, had to be given up. Surely it was the last thing she ever imagined when she went to India would be to be taking care of babies and praying that the Lord would help her to mix the right formula and washing diapers, everything that involved that is involved in taking care of little children. She said, I must have cut tens of thousands of tiny toenails and fingernails. A woman who had what is generally thought of as spiritual work, now doing all these mundane, menial, unnoticed tasks. For whom? Well, for the Lord of the universe. And inasmuch as she did it to one of the least of those babies, she did it for Christ. So Jesus shows us in this act that there are terribly mundane ways of taking up the cross. He could do it because he knew his origin and his destiny. Number three, he calls us to do as he has done, to show what true servanthood is. And Mary also showed us, didn't she? Mary gave her body to the Lord. Let it happen as you say, she said. Behold the handmaiden, the servant. Anything you say, Lord, I'm at your orders. That is true servanthood. Visible signs of the invisible reality of a life completely 
abandoned to Jesus Christ. I heard that 98% of the nurses in India, this was back when we were over there in 1984, I don't know what the percentage is now, but 98% of the nurses in India are Christians because Hindus will not do that kind of work. It's beneath them. They have a caste system. And one of the most difficult things that Amy had to cope with when she had these young women who had been traveling with her they were now to be to help her with the mothering of the babies and several of them were from very high castes and this was absolutely forbidden in their caste that they would do anything so menial and so dirty as taking care of, of babies and diapers so what example did they have except that of Amy Carmichael and she who had come from a very wealthy home herself in Ireland showed them what servanthood is like and gradually was able to teach them that we do this for Jesus it has nothing to do with anyone giving us any credit for it the servant is not greater than his master sometimes I have the opportunity to speak to young kids that are going out for a summer missions program or sometimes young people that are going out for maybe short term of two years or so and when they ask me for advice, what what would you have to say to missionaries going out, they want to know, I give them this verse, never forget that the servant is not greater than his master. If you find yourself on the mission field in a job that you didn't expect you were going to ever have to do, accept it as the will of God. The servant is not greater than his master. If you find that the authority that God has put over you is unreasonable or unjust, what will your response to that be? Before you resign from the mission or write to the board back in the States for a transfer of assignment, sort out whether or not your heart is a true servant heart. The idea of leadership is very appealing. I read a lot about, I mean, I I see in various things that come to my desk a great deal of talk in Christian magazines about leadership and leadership conferences and leadership courses and leadership books get sent to me. And I want to know where are the servants Do they understand these people who talk about leadership? Do they emphasize the fact that the leader has got to be the servant of all? Jesus was master, but he was also the servant of all. And I'm not very eager to emphasize leadership among women. I get asked to speak on that subject. And I usually warn the people who've asked me that, yes, I would be glad to speak on that subject, and my emphasis will be on servanthood. I don't think leadership is something that we should be seeking. It's something that will be conferred upon us by God if he wants us to be leaders in any way. But our ambition should be to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, not good and faithful CEO. (coughs) 
The idea of leadership is very appealing, it's enviable, but it is not what Jesus talked about, is it? He talked all the time about servanthood. The Pharisees could not stand his prominence, his authority, and his sway over people. They were men who appreciated power and public recognition, and it just killed them to see this humble rabbi, itinerant rabbi, after whom the crowds were going in droves. So they became jealous, of course. They were jealous of his prominence, his popularity, his authority. But foot washing? They wouldn't have been jealous of that, would they? They wouldn't have argued that point whatsoever. They did not envy that position. Who would ever envy that position? The cross? Who would envy that one? Who would be jealous of his position there, nailed and immobile? Whatever God calls you to do, make sure that you know where you come from and where you're going. This is a very short segment that we have here on earth. We came from God, we're going to God, and this is the only place where we have the opportunity to suffer. It is the only place where we have the opportunity to be perfected as a human being here on this earth. I don't know how much perfection goes on after we get to heaven. I don't suppose that it's an instantaneous thing, but I could be wrong about that. The point is, God has given us trials and tribulations here, and if we do, if we reject them, we will not find the opportunity anywhere else. Make sure you know where you're com- where you come from and where you're going. And in this short space in between, ask God to make you a faithful servant, available, as Mary was, saying, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, let it happen as you say. Do anything you want with me. Number four, what does it mean? It means laying down the possibility of a different quality of life. It means denial, which is self-giving. The Apostle Paul said that he was willing to spend and to be spent. Another way of stating broken bread and poured out wine. Are we willing to sell all in order to buy the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price? Jesus said, if you are not prepared to get rid of all your possessions, you are not. You cannot be my disciple. There were many hard words that Jesus spoke. It's amazing that the people followed him even as much as they did. Jesus said that it was for the loaves and fishes mostly that the multitudes followed him. But he asks us to sell all, to give up our right to ourselves, forsake father, mother, family, possessions, home, and everything that we have. And if we are not willing to do that, we are not qualified to be his disciples. It means not only the laying down the possibility of a different quality of life and denial 
of myself. It means discipline. And if you and I are to lead others to holiness, we must submit to God's discipline where it hurts the most. And as someone was saying today, if you want to find out if you have a servant's heart, note your attitude when somebody treats you like a servant. What is your response then? We get huffy and self-protective and irritated with anybody that might presume to treat us as a servant. A servant is one whose preferences are not honored. He is not asked what his agenda might be. He is told. It means work as well as discipline. And work is a privilege and a gift and a responsibility. I think it was St. Francis de Sales again, but I didn't put down the source of this one. Sounds like de Sales. The king of glory rewards his servants, not according to the dignity of the office, but according to the humility with which it is performed. The king of glory rewards his servants, not according to the dignity of the office, but according to the humility with, it, with which it is performed. How many of you have read Practicing the Presence of God? good many of you. It's about a monk who wanted to become a holy man, and so he went into the monastery to learn to be holy. And to his consternation, he was assigned to wash pots in the kitchen. And he didn't see how in the world he was ever going to become holy that way. But he began to practice the presence of God in the kitchen. He expected to be in a nice, quiet cell where he could meditate and contemplate and pray. And here he was, racing around, undoubtedly sweating in the hot kitchen of the monastery, subject to all kinds of demands from all kinds of people running through the kitchen, asking for this and that and the other thing. And in that situation, he began to learn to practice the presence of God. And he learned to do his work for God. Undoubtedly, he was rewarded according to the humility with which it was performed. It's a delightful little booklet. You should be able to find it somewhere. What else does it mean? Cooperation with God. It's an amazing privilege that you and I are given work to do which cooperates which is cooperation with God. And there is no more telling example of this than motherhood, because you are literally cooperating with God in his creative work of bringing another human being, another human soul, into this world. He needs your body in order to do that. He doesn't create people any other way. He requires the cooperation of one woman to bring that other child, that child, into the world. So we become, in the work that he gives us to do, cooperators with him. Many of you I know have met or heard or read Helen Rosevere, 
Um, she wrote several books, and Helen Rosevere was at Urbana one time when I was there, and we got to having some conversations together. And in her talk to the students, it had not been very long since her experience of being captured. She said they they deprived me first of my privacy, as she put it. They deprived me of my possessions, and they deprived me of my purity. She was gang-raped by the Simbas, I guess it was in those days, or whoever, I've forgotten. And then the Lord reminded her that it was not primarily against her that they had perpetrated these crimes. It was against him. But he said, you lent me your body in which I suffered. A form of cooperation with God that Helen Rosevere could not have imagined. She was a medical doctor, highly educated, wonderfully effective as a missionary, and God allowed her to be treated in this manner. Paul says in Colossians 1, 24, that he suffers with Christ. He says, this is my way of completing in my poor human flesh the sufferings of Christ. There's a deep mystery in that verse, and also in Philippians 1.29. Unto you it is given not only to believe, but also to suffer. That's where I get the idea that suffering is a gift. It is given not only to believe, but also to suffer. Philippians 1.29, Colossians 1.24, there is a world of of truth in those, and we'll be talking about that more when we talk about the subject of suffering tomorrow. Cooperation with God in ways which we never imagine, he will ask of us. It requires restraint of emotions for the sake of those over and under us. Some of you probably saw the movie Remains of the Day, a beautiful example of the restraint of emotions. Now, I don't suppose that most of the viewers who went to that movie applaud that sort of thing. In this day and age, we don't think very much of people who restrain their emotions. They're in denial, or they're uptight, and they're not freed up. But it's very clear from the scriptures that we are to restrain our emotions. We are to discipline our emotions. You don't let it all hang out. You don't stir up your emotions. You don't pour out all your troubles on somebody else's shoulders because they're already bearing burdens of their own. There is a sympathy which is permissible, provided it's not the soupy, weakening kind. It's not easy to sympathize without weakening someone. In order to... Be a true servant, which is what that movie was about, a butler who restrained his emotions for those, for the sake of those who were both over him and under him. Teach your children to restrain their emotions. And if you need some practical help in that, get my great-grandfather's book. It's called Hints on Child Training. It is available. It's in print. You can get it through Gateway to Joy. I don't know where else. His last name was Trumbull, T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L. 
Henry Clay Trumbull. He was my paternal grandmother's father. And he raised eight children. And he has some wonderful things to say about raising children, but I particularly loved his chapter on teaching your children to restrain their emotions. It means also that our gifts are at the disposal of a master. Perhaps your gifts have not been recognized. Perhaps they've never been asked for at all. But you know, I really believe that every one of us has a number of gifts. And it's quite impossible in this short life for us to exercise all the gifts that God has given us. People tell us, sometimes we hear people saying, well, I don't have any gifts. You know, I was behind the door when the gifts were given out. And so poor old me, I, I really can't do anything. And they're thinking of, I can't do what she does. And I can't do what he does. And I really can't serve the Lord. It's not true because the Bible says that he has given gifts to all. But if they're not recognized... We get all huffy about that. And if a missionary goes to the field and his gifts are not asked for at all, or as a lady who came back from the field felt that she had been insulted by being asked to do something which was beneath her, then we are not really prepared to be servants of Christ himself. How much scrutiny are you willing to endure? God might put you in a position of leadership where you are going to be scrutinized to your great discomfort. What kind of thanks are you looking for? Ad used to say that he heard a woman say one time, I work my fingers to the bone for this church, and what kind of thanks do I get? And Ad said, what kind of thanks did you expect? For whom do we do the job? And it takes devotion. We're down to the last one. Holy and humble in calling others to do as we have done. This is leadership, which springs from servanthood. Let us not aim at leadership. Let us aim at servanthood. But out of true servanthood comes the kind of leadership which inspires other people to want to do that holy, humble in calling others, in setting an example, and asking nothing of them which we have not asked of ourselves. And Amy Carmichael was very strong about that. She would not ask of anybody a job that she herself was not willing to do. And when there was a cholera epidemic in the little village of Donovore, it was Amy who took her pail of disinfectant and her rags and went down into those little huts in the village where nobody else would go, not even the doctors. And she saved lives. And according to verse 17 in this chapter that we looked at, happiness will be the result. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And blessed means happy. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>